Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the best of My Time Capsule 2021. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is a collection of small snippets from the episodes of My Time Capsule that we've recorded this year. In each episode, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they love and one thing that they loathe. And that's it. And I'm delighted to say we've had some really lovely guests. And none lovelier than my guest from episode 110 of My Time Capsule, the stand-up comedian and musician, Izzy Sutty. The best audition advice that I ever received, actually, is to do the audition as if you've got the job and um, you're filming it and it's just before lunchtime and everyone's getting a bit kind of restless and they want to go for lunch and the crew are starting to look at their watches. And you've got this take to just do it as efficiently as possible. So I think that gets you to make quite bold choices because you just think, mm. let's get this done, let's let's do it well, and then let's go on to have lunch. Yeah, but certainly taking away that, that almost uh, element of pleading that there is in... Yeah, in your behaviour at some auditions. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so um, I, I, I could, I, I, I can take less money. <laughs> I'll do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> I'll drive there. You don't have to send a car. I'll bring a back lunch. I'll do my own makeup. <laughs> You've got the job. Yes, exactly. What a gorgeous person Izzy is. And in fact, she's married to an equally gorgeous person, someone I had to wait until episode 144 to interview. Izzy's husband is the stand-up comedian Ellis James. And here he is talking about a very important gig in his life. Oh, you may not notice, but Ellis is Welsh. So you only get an opportunity to write your first show once. Yeah. But because there was so much stuff from my background and my childhood that I couldn't do on stage in English because people wouldn't get the references, 
I effectively was able to write my first show twice. I'd get a second <laughs> attempt at writing my first show because there was all this stuff from school and my childhood and things my grandparents used to do or my relationship with my parents, which didn't resonate with an English or a Scottish audience or even a, a non-Welsh-speaking Welsh audience. Mm. And all these observations about Welsh language culture, which were unique to Welsh language culture and Welsh language television and music and all that kind of stuff. It was all this stuff that I'd been unable to use. The thing that was so exciting was the problem with your first show is that your first show is your best. If you're an autobiographical stand-up, and if you're not just doing topical mm. stuff, or if you're not just writing, you know, jokes, your first show really is your best material because it's everything up to that point. <laughs> yeah. And the, sh the shame is you're usually not a good enough stand-up to get the best out of that material, uh, to get the best out of the source material because you don't have the craft yet mm. to make the most of it. So I said to Geth all along, I said, listen, you and I can try and hone it together and we can try and improve it. But I said, I can't learn it all as well. So what we'll do on the night, we'll have um, <laughs> we'll have an auto cue. So then I can just concentrate on my performance. And he said, fine, no problem. And uh, the only problem with that plan was I'd never used an auto cue before. <laughs> <laughs> so I turned up at about lunchtime and I met the crew and we sorted out the lights and... Then I had something to eat. And then at about five o'clock, he said, do you want to give this autocue a go? Oh, God. And I said, yeah, yeah, fine, let's do that. Because that was the one part that I thought was going to be fine. And then we tried the autocue. And in, in fairness to Geth, he'd wanted me to do these. <laughs> he'd wanted me to do these. Uh, the the autocue all day. And I'd been putting it off. I think because I was a bit nervous. I was thinking about other stuff. Anyway, we tried it at five o'clock and I couldn't read it. Oh, no. So by about five past five, I said this isn't working, Kev. I can't, I can't do this. And he went white. Oh God. And he said, so what are you going to do? We're on, we're on stage at seven. I said, I'll write bullet points on my hand. I will just, we'll just go for it. So that's what I did. So I went upstairs. I said, if you can bring me some to eat, I'll pace in the dressing room and I'll run it in real time. So I've done it once on my own before we start. Oh. And then as I'm doing it in the dressing room, I'll write down bullet points for things that I forget. And he was like, okay. So that's what I did. So I paced up and down and I, I did the show to myself. But obviously I forgot everything. <laughs> oh, <God>. so, so, <laughs> by about 20 past six, I had bullet points started from the knuckle of my little finger, basically up <laughs> to my elbow. <laughs> It looked like it, and because because the notes were so small, because I, I was I was running out of body, I was running out of arm. It was all unreadable. So we were on stage at seven, and at about twenty to seven, I was like, "This is this is insane! I can't I can't do this." So I washed my hand, which took ages. Took my washed on my my hand on my arm, and I wrote a very basic skeleton. Yeah. Incredibly, it was fine. So sheer adrenaline. But I remember going on stage and I remember thinking to myself, as long as I get my first joke out, I'll be all right. So <laughs> I just kept retelling my first joke to myself again and again and again. I thought, once mm. I've done that, we're off. So I did my first joke. That went okay. And then I was off. And after about half an hour, I'm thinking, 
wow, this is, I'm actually going to get away with this. And I, I watched it back a couple of years ago and I'm sweating, like I'm quite wild-eyed because I can't <laughs> believe I'm getting away with it. <laughs> and of the three I wrote, 2015 is my favourite because up to the very last moment, I didn't think I could get away with it. And I think I did get away with it. Right, let's jump back to episode 70 of My Time Capsule and a guest who I was really honoured to have on our podcast. Quite literally, one of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time. As long as you agree with his politics, which I do. It's Mark Thomas. Years ago, I was doing a show where I was looking at the, the rules and regulations regarding demonstrating in Parliament Square. David Blunkett, who was then Home Secretary, said you needed to give advance notice that you were going to demonstrate <laughs> and you need to give the police six days' notice and you need to fill in a form and you know tell them all this stuff. And actually, the thing about this is that demonstrating is a right. It's a thing that you just have. You don't get permission from the state because, you know, it's often the state you're demonstrating against. The idea that you should go and ask permission from the people you're in opposition to is frankly nuts. <laughs> Would you mind if I could be rebellious, sir? Yes, for half an hour. It's nuts. <laughs> so, you know, I started to look at the way that this law was drafted very badly. If you make a law very quickly, and also if you make a law that's only designed to, it was, it was brought in to get the peace campaigner. Brian Hoare, who was outside, who had a peace camp, and it was to get rid of him. If you bring in a law that applies to everybody because you want one person to stop doing something, unless it, that one person is pressing a nuclear bomb, the law's not really worth it. No. So they brought in this law and we just examined it and ripped it apart. And what happened was I, went, I started to go along and I said, right, I want permission to demonstrate and I went to the police station, I went to Charing Cross Police Station, and I met a guy called PC Paul McAnally, who was a Scottish police officer working out at Charing Cross. And he picked up my form and goes, right, Mr. Thomas, you wish to demonstrate to defend surrealism? And I said, <laughs> I, I said yes, I can demonstrate on anything I like. He said, you can indeed. I just didn't know surrealism was under threat. <laughs> and at that point, you just think, oh, you're in the show. Do you know what I mean? When you meet somebody, when you meet someone like that, and you just think, oh, they're full of play. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so I did a demonstration to defend surrealism. And we invited the founders of the British Surrealist Movement, the Penrose family. We said, do you want to take part in a demonstration to defend surrealism in Parliament Square? And they said, no, we're all right. But they sent along they sent along items to represent themselves, a pair of socks and an onion. So standing <laughs> <Very> <laughs> in Parliament Square with a pair of socks and an onion. Defend surrealism. <laughs> we had my mates turned up. They had people brought along banners with what do we when what, which was a great, <laughs> <laughs> great surrealist sort of like statement somebody else that just had wallpaper on their banner and they just stood there facing the traffic like ah! <laughs> <laughs> we just had a great laugh yeah and then we applied there's a law that says you you need six days but if it's an emergency demonstration you could apply with one day and so i applied for a demonstration to destroy surrealism and pc pulled back and you you were you were defending it yesterday i said i've changed my mind he said i can see that <laughs> <laughs> you just think this is great the great mark thomas there and the stand-up comedians keep coming thick and fast well not thick, certainly not in this man's case. From episode 89 of My Time Capsule, it's the stand-up comedian who really has a way with words, Simon Evans. 
second item, these are in no particular order, but um, my second item would be the feeling of physical fitness and levity and potential, um, which I think is actually the root of almost all happiness, really. And almost anything that, you know, it does not involve that is often sublimating that or is kind of substituting it possibly. That uh, um, I think there's, there's, there's nowhere that I ever feel quite so fit and sort of capable and bursting with life as I do in the Lake District and uh, in particular running down the hills at the end of the day when I know I've done all the hard work, I've done all the <laughs> climbing of the day, uh, my boots have got as wet as they're going to get and uh, and there's a pub at the bottom with a pint of Jennings waiting for me. Mm. And I go up there every year, have done for about 30 odd years with a bunch of mates. Um, we've remained a very stable unit, a couple have come and gone, but by and large, we've we, you know, five or six of us have really really clung to it as a sort of rock, you know, as uh, as the season and winds of, of life buffet us. And uh, we get up there usually in, in autumn, uh, get a good seven or eight hour walk in. And um, the others, they like to sort of stump down quite slowly and uh, take their time and, and watch their step. But I discovered a few years ago that there's an extraordinary euphoria to be had in just really allowing gravity to do most of the work on the way down and just like as, as as nimbly as you possibly can, fending yourself away from the bigger and more jagged obstacles, <laughs> like wow. hopping and skipping. And so far, touch wood, I have yet to hurt myself. Across rough ground? Well, down paths, you know, rocky mm. paths, yeah. But there's the sort of paths that are, that are common in the lakes. We don't go off, off path anyway. And, of course, it's ecologically um, important that you, you stick mm. to the path as well rather than wearing everything out. But, um, yeah, sometimes they're sort of slightly marshy or boggy. Sometimes they're, they're, they're fully rocky. Sometimes there's a bit of scree. And, of course, you know, you do go at different speeds. But it's extremely exciting. That The key is, I think, that you are just judging where to put your foot just in time. You know, there's that constant sort of sense. I imagine skiers get, get the same thrill. I've never managed to master skiing. I haven't skied often enough, I think, to sort of build up that, that skill, and it might be a bit too late now. But that same sense that you are just making decisions, to, you know, as, as everything flashes past you, you have to live in the moment. You have no alternative, because if you if you start dreaming about something else, you'll come a cropper, you know. And so you're hurtling down the hill, and you know when you get to the bottom, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a pint for you. But but it's a it's a nice long journey. It's a good half an hour or so, you know, even, even uh, at speed, running from the top of a hill down to where it starts to shallow out and mm. it's just really an absolutely ecstatic feeling so i mean i wouldn't have a particular example of it but um wasdale head is uh is there's a good pub there that's it i'll pick <laughs> that one out and that also of course is also the home of josh naylor who is probably the most legendary of the actual fell runners a shepherd who lives up there and is also has sort of extraordinary innumerable records to his name like uh, climbing 60 peaks in 60 hours at the age of 60 and things like this. It's he, extraordinarily, he's a unique sort of presence. So he's a bit of a sort of mascot almost, I think of him <laughs> as a sort of totem, you know. I love walking, Simon, but I'm really the idea of running back down the hill at the end of the day. Well, I think, I, I do think the world is divided into people who naturally get it or don't. I think that mm. there's a lot of truth to that. And actually, my friends that I walk with up there are very sceptical about fell runners, where occasionally one goes past us and then, you know, five minutes later you see the flash of his orange shirt, you know, three miles away on the next yeah. peak. What have you got? My God. I, I, am, I would struggle to run up. But it's quite a different thing, the running down thing. Of course, mm. I mean, the sad thing about it is, of course, you might say that it, it sort of 
you want to take time to relish those last dying embers of the day, you know, and instead you're you're rushing through it. To which I would say, well, you just stay up a bit longer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, personally, I think I prefer to get down to the pub. Right, here's the actor, presenter and writer, Emma Kennedy, from episode 106 of my time capsule, with a lovely story from when she was a sweet little girl. The musical, and I got it for my third birthday, and I just listened to it on an absolute loop, just constantly, 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 so that I knew all the words off by heart. And my parents were teachers, and they took me into school one day, as as they were wont to do. And I cannot express to you what an angelic child I looked. I had sort of very curly blonde hair, big green eyes, butter wouldn't melt. Mm-hmm. And the drama teacher came over to me and was sort of cooing and and laring and all the things that, that you normally expect when you put women of a certain age anywhere near a toddler. And that, that was all happening. And she bent down and she said, well, do you want to sing me a little song? <laughs> Thinking that I was going to sing Bar Bar Black Sheep. And I just nodded. Mm-hmm. And then I sang this. Now, I'll leave a pause here just in case you have to take this out for copyright purposes. But if you have to take this out for copyright purposes, I urge anyone listening to just Google sodomy from hair and then listen to it. But if you don't have to take it out for copyright purposes, here is that song now. So this is what I sang, age three. Sodomy, fellatio, carnalingus, pederasty, mother, why do these words sound so nasty? Masturbation can be fun, join the holy orgy, Kama Sutra. Everyone! And I gave that a full pelt. And my dad said all he could hear around the staff room were spoons just dropping into their saucers. My dad says to this day, he says it's one of his proudest moments of me singing sodomy from here. Yet you never know where the stories are going to go. Sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're a bit more serious. Here, from episode 112 of my time capsule, is the actor and star of countless West End musicals, Gary Wilmot. Your career, you've been right through the scale, really, when you think about it, when you think you started. Mm. When did you, really, the 70s? Yeah, in the late 70s. The change between then and now is, is astonishing, isn't it? Well, not astonishing, just why the hell is it taking so long? Yeah, it's true. Um, somebody pointed this out to me, actually. I just, when I turn up, I just, I audition, I get on, I never think about race. I was raised in a white community, pretty much. You know, I had a couple of friends, uh, Stephen Sango and Eddie Adoja, but and, but they were like me. They were mixed race and they were, you know, we were all raised in what was a predominantly white community. And that's what formed me as a person. And so when I go into a rehearsal room, I don't ever look at colour. I don't see colour. I don't, I just don't. And so I was going in and, and for these jobs and, and getting them. And, uh, uh, and when I went in for me and my girl, of course, before that had been people like Cole Howman playing that role and Robert Lindsay, of course, kicked it all off and Enrytel. And and I went in, mm-hmm. and I wasn't I wasn't expecting to get that role. I wasn't anybody's idea of an archetypal Cockney character from 1937. And yet, 
weirdly enough, I was the most qualified being born and raised in Lambeth. And my school was in the Lambeth Walk, would you believe? Um, <laughs> and, and so I was the most qualified and, and they thought there was something about it. And I just, and they offered me the job and I took it. Since then, the only all black production I've done, in fact, the only production I've done where my colour has been relevant was Carmen Jones at the Old Vic which was an all-black cast. Mm. Uh, apart from that, I've played Fagan. Yeah. I've played, to all intents and purposes, Barry Manilow in Copacabana. <laughs> you know, I know it's weird, isn't it? It's weird. But I've done that. Not con- I've never stood up on a soap. Perhaps I should have done. But I've never stood up on a soapbox and, uh, and, and gone on about, you know, we should have more black actors and we should be doing that. I kind of got my head down and I got on with it. And, uh, and it seems to, it doesn't work for everybody. And I'm not saying we should all do it that way because we, we do need people, you know, as we know, uh, Martin Luther King, to stand up and be counted and push the barriers. I think that by doing it, mm. you have stood out against it. Because I do remember when you took over in Me and My Girl mm. that there was a fuss made about it. And it was one of the yeah. early times that I remember people saying, it doesn't matter, it's a play. Colour is completely irrelevant. Yeah, plays are not, it's not the real world. It's a completely made up world, even if you're recreating a true story. I mean, if, if I walked on and I go, oh, I'm the giant, everyone goes, oh, he's the giant. They don't, they don't question it. Gary Wilmot there with the revelation that actors are pretending. Well, I never. With stand up comedians, though, you slightly suspect that they're showing you a bit more of themselves. In fact, that's sort of the aim of my time capsule, and it usually works, as demonstrated by the lovely Joe Caulfield. Yeah, and you're right, that thing. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah, if you have that feeling, go and do it. Mm. Yeah. And if it goes badly, it goes badly. But like you say, I've never heard of it going badly. No, although I have read about you, that you did a thing on Radio 4 where you were talking about your sister hitching around Europe with her. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which sounded to me like the most terrifying thing. What the hell were you playing at? What a ridiculous idea. But she was my big sister, so I always thought Annie knew best. It was only as I sort of went along that I thought, oh, she never thinks anything through. That's what's so exciting about her. She's like, I want an adventure to write about. So let's do something really stupid as two young women. Let's hitchhike around Europe. (laughs) You know, we were constantly in terrible situations. We had to jump out of a moving lorry going on a hairpin bend in the Swiss Alps. Oh, my God. Where, and we, as we go, as it slows right down, they almost stop as they go around the corners because these are real, real Alps. And Annie went, get your rucksack, we're jumping out because wow. he had his hands all over her. She would always sit in the front, see, because she thought she could handle it all. And then we're like, oh, we can't. <laughs> and that's when I was grabbing my rucksack and jumping out of the moving lorry that I was like, I don't think she knows best always. I should I keep this in the back of my mind to kind of maybe have another suggestion if she suggests something. You know, There was constant things like that. And a man who drove us into the middle of the woods. Oh, my God. And I was thinking, well, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is Little Red Riding Hood, you know. <laughs> This is classically wrong. And um, and then he went away, but then he came back. Oh, Lord, and it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And what was funny was my sister went up to talk to him French because she'd lived in France for a year, so she was, you know, talked French, and she would all be trying to be sophisticated, <laughs> and I was standing behind her with a saucepan, right, <laughs> to put him over the head like a cartoon. And what it was, he said, because I remember hearing him say, cut a la man, and I thought, does that mean just a hand job? And she said, he said, I'd put money in the windscreen when I picked you up. 
So he was just annoyed, like we hadn't given the service he was expecting. Uh, and he said, so I, you knew that that's what I was expecting. Oh, my Lord. But your sister sounds, oh, my God, she sounds fantastic. And if you want to hear more about Joe's sister, then I recommend listening to episode 123 of My Time Capsule. I can personally recommend it. It's a cracker. And talking of crackers, here's the pop master himself, Ken Bruce. You are the most well-known voice in the country, I would say, other than possibly the Queen. And uh, no, I was going to say Rob Brydon, but no, he's you anyway, isn't he? He does you. <laughs> yeah, and he, he makes more money being me than I do. That's true. Is, uh, uh, it's been a long time coming because uh, it's been a long, slow burn Yeah. Um, to suddenly find everybody's looking at you and saying, oh, you're, you know, you're very good. Well, for most of the time, people didn't even know I was there. So uh, I've been through... A long time of uh, people not really noticing me. Yeah. So to have people noticing me now, it's not going to go to my head. I can be <laughs> sure of that. And it's uh, it's going to be, uh, it's, I'm just enjoying it, but I'm not making too much of it. Well, do you think that whole thing is that nobody ever spoke to anybody else about how regularly they listen to Popmaster? No, I think it's just one of those things that's always, you know, to, in people's perception, it's always been there. Mm. But um, it's only when people start talking to each other that they say, um, oh, yeah, this is actually, you know, it's, it's quite good. And, and the quiz particularly is something that people did start talking to each other about. And small groups of people sprang up who were all playing against each other. And we discovered that people were actually putting down their coffees or their tools at 10.30 Mm. to play along with this. And, yes. and that, it's been, a, as I say, a very long, slow process. It's gradually seeped into people's consciousness. <laughs> it's the greatest thrill when something that I've done has been an answer. Yes, yeah, the chicken song, which, of course, you've based your entire fortune upon. Entire fortune, <laughs> absolutely. It's kept me going. <laughs> OK, here's a little bit from episode 81 and one of this country's finest actors. From her Golden Globe Best Actress Awards for the TV series The Hour and the miniseries Emma, to her BAFTA Best Actress for The Crimson Petal and the Rose, to films such as The Last Days on Mars, Atonement and Suffragette, here is the least starry star you could ever meet, Romola Gary. So, um, I have to say, I did find this very challenging because I realised after about an hour of thinking and writing things down that everything that I'd written down was just food, was just <laughs> meals in different restaurants. <laughs> Very specific things from different restaurants. And I thought, that's a different podcast. That's Off Menu, I think. It's called Off Menu, that's right. Um, but I managed to condense all of my food <laughs> obsession down to one thing, mm -hmm. which is um, a cream tea at... Fat Apples Cafe, which is a little kind of cafe, which is uh, little wooden tables and chairs underneath these apple trees in a place called Portalo in, in Cornwall. It's the best cream tea in England, and I would fight to the death anyone who suggested otherwise. Or <laughs> <laughs> tried to take it away from you. Or tried to take it away from I have been known, actually, to bite down hard into the hand of anyone trying to take one of my scones. <laughs> I mean, I, I get into a sort of state of rapture when I'm there because it's somewhere I, you only ever go once a year, obviously, in the summertime when you're on your holes. And then I can't really eat it in anything other than total silence 
like a sort of monk. <laughs> and it has been difficult since, you know, I've had children because I'm sort of sometimes expected to kind of interact or stop them running into the road or all the rest of it. But I really just can't really do that <laughs> when I'm eating a cream tea. Uh, excuse me, your, your children are going over the cliff. Will you shut up? Do you mind? Sorry. I've only eaten <laughs> one scone. Yeah. Uh, whereabouts in Cornwall is it? It's in, in the Lizard sort of unattractively named the lizard, (laughs) which is not a part of Cornwall I ever went to as a child or I don't, you know, I never knew it at all until a few years ago. And it feels a bit like a secret because, you know, I think fewer people go to that part of Cornwall, more people go to like St. Ives. And when I was a kid, we never went to the same place on holiday. We always sort of went somewhere new. We'd go to Devon one year and then Wales the next year and then the Lake District. And I think I've realised as an adult that I'm I, I like to return to the same place on holiday. I really like that feeling of continuity which I didn't have when I was growing up. So I've become slightly obsessed with going back to this part of Cornwall and going back to the same places and doing the same things now that I've got kids. And then, of course, they'll grow up and they'll say, we were trapped in this awful cycle where we always had to go to the same place. (laughs) They'll they'll (laughs) desperately like trying to do different things every year because you, yeah, reacting against your own childhood holidays all the time. Romola Gary. Well, I don't know about you, but that's maybe a little bit peckish. So while I nip off for a quick cream tea, we're going to take a little ad break. We'll be back in a minute. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back to the best of My Time Capsule 2021, Part 2. Right, my next guest is the actor, writer and stand-up comedian Sanjeev Kohli. And this is possibly one of my favourite funny stories from My Time Capsule. Although I have to say, if you don't like bad language, then you'd probably be better off skipping this bit. If you do like bad language, you're going to fucking love this. It's really dangerous to analyse jokes because um, I don't know if it's a thing so much in England or Scotland, but at Halloween, like, I mean, do you guys go out, like, guising, we call it, you know, trick-or-treating? Yeah, um, we do. I always think of it as being an American thing, but do they do it more in Scotland than they do here? Well, they do, and and they, you, you have to have a joke or a song, you have to have a turn, otherwise ah, you won't get your sweets. That's the trick, is it? That's the thing. So um, my boy was, I think this was a few Halloweens ago, he's 14 now, must have been about seven, he was going out, and I said, so Vinny, what's your joke? He said, what do you mean? I think he was expecting to get, expecting to get an iPad for nothing. I said, no, <laughs> you have to tell a joke. And he said, okay, I'll tell this joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Because he was a Mr. Pooh head, okay? <laughs> and I said, okay, Vinny, I, I know why you think that's a joke. Why did the dare? Because the dare, but it's not actually a joke. He said, why not? I said, okay, right. I think, why isn't that a joke? I said, okay, right. I'll tell you a joke, and then I'll explain why it's a joke. He said, fine. Mm. So I'm thinking, what joke I tell a seven-year-old? I said, okay, right. What about this one? Why didn't the skeleton go to the party? Because he had no body to go with. And he said, why is that a joke? I said, well, because no body means two things. So it means the skeleton has no body, and it also means no one's. It's got two meanings. That's a joke. And then he said, why is that funny? <laughs> and I was stumped. Because why is a pun funny? Why is wordplay funny? Why, do we, why does a body do that thing? I said to him, just do the poo head joke. And I, I told that story. <laughs> I told that story to a couple of comedy writers. And they said, well, do you know why? Why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Do you know why that's a joke? I said, actually, no. No. What's funny about it? And he said, it goes back to sort of Victorian Dickensian times when everyone believed in God. And to get to the other side also meant to go to heaven. Oh. So why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side had two meanings. Ah, uh, of course. But then I don't know why it's a chicken, Mike. That baffles me. Why chicken? And honestly, let's not go down the road of where the chickens go to heaven. Do chickens go to Are there 57 chickens waiting for them? Do animals? Do animals go to heaven? I'd be ridiculous. I mean, let's think about it. The place is going to be rammed. <laughs> yeah, and we're talking about farmyard animals that are quite sizable. What about insects? There's 50 million of those fuckers. They can't all have a place in heaven, can they? Amoebas, paramecia. And this, Mike, is why we can't analyse jokes. <laughs> Why did you go to heaven? It'll be like Scotland in summer. <laughs> that ain't heaven. <laughs> I'm now going to ruin these kids' lives by every time saying, well, yeah, do your trick then. Yeah, make them. Yeah. Make them tell a joke. And also you'll get a brilliant range of jokes. And it's, <laughs> it was, like, you're talking about jokes kind of getting arms and legs. So every Halloween there'll be a joke that's told four times. It's clearly the joke du jour. Mm. But then you'll get an eight-year-old telling you a joke. Oh, my God, it reminds me of a time. How are we for language on this? Fine. Are we? Okay, right. Oh, just because it's illustrative. My niece, when she was 10, and she, I, I pray to God she didn't tell this joke at Halloween going around strangers' doors, right? But she said to me, oh, uncle, I've got a great joke for you. I said, oh, go on, jump in, tell me the joke. And she's quite innocent looking. In my mind's eye, she had pigtails. And uh, she said, there are three tampons walking along the road. Which one crosses the road to speak to you? I'm already thinking, okay, we're taking a left turn here. I said, I don't know, John Preet. And she said, none of them, they're all stuck-up cunts. <laughs> I was honestly, my jaw was in China. It's it fallen through so hard off. 
for my face. It was unbelievable. I love the innocence of that, that they don't realise quite how rude they're being. That's what I think is the situation. Oh, God, yeah. My friend Angus, one of his sons, was in the car with his mate from school, and he was driving them to school, and he said, um, Peter's in trouble. He said a rude word to the teacher, and his friend said, what did he say? He said, I can't say it's too rude. It's far too rude. He said, no, go on, say it. So he said, well, he called her an effing cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the innocence of youth. Now, not all my guests have been actors or comedians. For example, in episode 84, I spoke to the composer Howard Goodall, who's written hit West End musicals and, well, scores of classical scores. Here he is talking about his university friend and a man he's worked with for most of his career, Rowan Atkinson, but also about a piece of music that he worked on that was listened to simultaneously by more people than almost any other piece of music in history. One of the first people I met, well, in fact, the first person I met at university, literally on my first day, was Rowan Atkinson. And he was doing an MSc at that point in electronics, electronical Mm. engineering. And his special subject was about waveforms and voltage-controlled oscillators, which, as some of your listeners will know, is the bedrock of a synthesizer. Yes. And when I went to university, started university, synthesizers had just started arriving into the UK from America and other places where they were being developed. And um, Rowan and I immediately found fellow interest in organs and synthesizers. (laughs) And when we did uh, our first comedy show with Richard Curtis and a number of others together uh, in my third week at university Mm. in the Oxford Playhouse, I had an electric piano by then. And I said to Rowan, you know what I'd really like to do is I'd like to get a synthesizer and put it into this show so that this weird character you have the character that eventually became a kind of a Mr. Bean character, Mm. uh, could be accompanied by something a bit unworldly and a bit strange and unusual. And I said, I think... And Rome was absolutely up for this. And it just happened to be that I was making an album, my first album in a band. (laughs) And the producer of that album said, I've got an ARP 2600, which... I know it means nothing to you, but it was it's a it's a legendary, iconic early synthesizer. Look, I've interviewed Rick Wakeman. I know all okay, about these things. Rick would know all about the ARP yes. 2600. He's probably got one, an original one. <laughs> anyway, the producer of this album said, would you like to borrow the 2600? I said, would I like to borrow it? I mean, you can't imagine <laughs> my excitement about this. This was an instrument, by the way, that you would rarely see. I mean, in this point, we're talking about 1976, you would never have seen one of these things and we used it in those first shows with Rowan uh, in Oxford, as a, in the student show. And every time his sort of what we used to call the gobbledygook character, which was his kind of yeah. prototype, Mr. Beam, uh, I would use this synthesizer. Uh, and I developed this. And then when we went on tour, I persuaded Rowan to buy for the tour a Yamaha CS80, <laughs> one of the greatest synthesizers ever made. It was a thing of utter beauty. It's the thing of chariots and fire, you know, Stevie Wonder. It's one of the great iconic synthesizers of all time. Now, I do not know, by the way, I rang up Rowan the other day and said, you don't still have the Yamaha, do you, in some storage somewhere? Because you do realise now 
they are incredibly valuable. Like, you can't get them on eBay for love no more. They're so <laughs> he, valuable. He's short of a penny or two as well. Well, he, he is. He would have been excited I, but about But actually, that. what he's... I was really thinking was, I would pretend to him they were only worth about 500 quid and buy it off him <laughs> uh, and not tell him that they are now worth thousands and thousands because they're so rare. Uh, anyway, he said he'd got rid of it in an earlier stage, which we all do. You know, yeah. we have these old pieces of equipment and we don't know they're valuable when they go out of fashion and you get rid of them. Anyway, so I have an incredibly fond love of, the, of these things. And by yeah. the way, when we came to do, I'm sorry, I'm digressing. No, all that's over all the right. Show, but when we came to do the 2012 Olympic Games, the opening ceremony where we did a thing, Richard, myself and Rowan put together this thing for Danny Boyle, which was the chariots of fire idea that he was a member of the orchestra and all the rest of it. In order to do that, I had to recreate the chariots of fire soundtrack because we were going to do things with it, you know, change the lengths and the, all that, you know, little tiny changes that would make it fit our sketch. Um, but I wanted to recreate it exactly, you know, as, as the sounds, which were all made by two synthesizers of that era, of the Chariots of Fire era, one of which was the Yamaha CS80. So a great joy for me in doing that job for the Olympics was actually getting these sounds back up and you know, running them back on and recreating the Chariots of Fire Vangelis theme exactly as it had originally been recorded with the same sounds and everything. Wow. It was a bit like doing archaeology, you know, recreating a Roman house. <laughs> I don't think many people who saw, many of the three billion people who saw that were thinking, oh, that's interesting, they've recreated the Yamaha CS80 <laughs> sound there. Very but, accurate. Uh, it, it certainly, um, you know, tickled me. And the billions of people who heard it, I should imagine. Howard Goodall there. We heard from my next guest in part one of these compilation episodes, but I thought we should hear from her again as she talked about a recurring subject on my time capsule that Shafiq Sandy and a number of other people have talked about, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. Here's Josie Long. So are you very sensitive to sound and noise and get overwhelmed by it? Yeah, I do. And it's something that it's so funny to get a diagnosis of ADHD at the age of 38 because I could look back at my whole life and be like, oh, when I first moved in with a boyfriend about 15 years ago and I used to get so stressed when we were sleeping because there was very specific noises outside the window Mm. and he used to sort of sometimes cover my ears and I used to get so frustrated and he'd be like this really isn't loud like you need to just let this go and I'd be like I I can't it's Mm. torturing me Mm -hmm. and now I'm like oh yes I'm very sensitive to noises and even if I would describe them the hell for me is a um, fire alarm slowly dying oh yeah you know it's like it's like painful and the fact that it's irregular Mm. so just every now and again you're stabbed in the brain so you just sit there and wait when's it gonna happen (laughs) next yes my whole time i'm like it's gonna happen and it makes me feel sick (laughs) my grandson has uh, that sensitivity to things you know where we went to the beach the other week and it was just too windy Mm. the wind constantly bashing against him he just couldn't take it at all and that thing of noise that most people wouldn't really notice at all. You'd sort of go, what? What are you talking about? It's them talking, 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 talking. So I have a sense of it a bit, what you're talking about. It's hard. It's hard. I'm sure it's hard, yeah. But it's funny too because for me as well, some people's voices on some frequency seem to kill me but I have no control over that. And so like (laughs) one in a hundred people I'll be like, 
<laughs> like, what are you? <laughs> I don't know what it is, but <laughs> mate, it must be one particular frequency or one style or something. But I get that. I get very crabby sometimes when someone's walking behind me and their voice, for whatever reason, is just hitting me on that level. Like, oh, what? how funny. I was doing that today, listening to, to a commentator. And I kept doing her voice back. And my wife said, what are you doing? I said, oh, just such an annoying voice, isn't it? <laughs> right, moving on before you find my voice annoying, and I wouldn't blame you. Imagine spending hours every day sitting in a makeup chair while people stick a mask on you. Well, my next guest has done that for years and years and years. Famous for his role as Crichton in the very long-running sci-fi comedy Red Dwarf, here is Robert Llewellyn. Right. Well, I'll do the treasure thing because I think this is a thing you treasure, but with a bit of piss and vinegar. So it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's it's a rubber mask. I think I do have to put that in because it's it's been such an important part of my life with Red Dwarf and uh, Crichton and you know coping with that rubber head. So I actually have got one, uh, you know, one we didn't use mm-hmm. from a series we would have done in the nineties, but it's basically putrid rubber semi-dust it does break up you know it's a um a prosthetic foam mm. rubber and it doesn't last that long so there is i've got a box with it in and you can tell it was a Crichton mask but if you touch it it just goes <laughs> to rather unpleasant tacky dust it's not pleasant so i've got a mold that is my head that the mask mold is made on and do they do a new one each series or yeah do a new one each day that i'm wearing a new mask every day a new mask every day because their masks are destroyed when you remove them of course uh, you, yes. the, the stuff that removes the glue because the glue is unimaginable uh stuff it's surgical glue you know to get that off you can use a special oil to get that off well it destroys the mask as well you right. can't you can't use them twice which makes it quite a pricey <laughs> process mm-hmm. and how long does it take them to put that on well the, the first year i did it so that 1989 was the first year i did it was uh, five hours in the morning. So I can't quite remember. There's a great story that Craig loves telling, which is, you know, me and Danny were out, we were out like with some, I don't know what we were doing, man. I can't remember, you know. But anyway, <laughs> we come back to the hotel, lift door opens when we're going up to my room just to have a couple of stiff ones. <laughs> and there's Bobby. And I said, Bobby, come up to the hotel. He said, I can't, I'm going to work. So <laughs> I met them coming back from clubbing when I was off. I was off to work. And then he'd be there at like nine o'clock in the morning when we, uh, when we started shooting. Perfectly all right. Mm. You know, and I mean, he was, at, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how that man is still going. <laughs> yes, it's remarkable. He was a lively young man, wasn't he? <laughs> he was a lively young man. He's a delightful, slightly older man, but he's still going yeah. strong. How extraordinary. Well, that rubber mask. I mean, uh, tell me that the technology has improved and it doesn't take five hours now. Oh, enormously. No, it is much better now. So that first year I did it, I just went, you know, I kind of got, I felt like I got talked into it, then was really happy that I got talked into it, met the rest of the cast, got on with them really well straight away. They were amazing. Mm. Then went to have some technicians from the BBC cover my head for a long time with alginate, like you bite on and when you go to the dentist, that mm. stuff, whole head covered in that, then plaster Paris on top, breathing through a straw up your nose. <laughs> I mean, what the... I thought I was going to get like a helmet like Robocop had, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then take that off and have lunch. So then once I put that on, you know, there's lots of stories about it, but uh, I could eat. No one was stopping me eating, but if I was eating and got anything on the lips, one, the lips would all get fluffy and fall off, and two... It felt like you had someone else's flannel in your mouth. Oh. <laughs> it's really unpleasant. <laughs> someone you didn't like. 
<laughs> Somebody old. Somebody old that you didn't like. Oh, and no. they've, they've shoved their, their flannel in. It was just horrible taste of this sort of bit of old curry on your lip. It was terrible. So that was a nightmare. So I then learned not to eat while I had it on. And I just have a milkshake at lunch. And of course, you know, Dan and Craig and Chris come and eat their lunch. And I've seen this beautiful food when we're on location. Wonderful. Yeah. And I was having a milkshake. You know, it's miserable. <laughs> so years and years of that. And then, uh, but that casting process at the beginning of the each series was pretty challenging mm. i coped with it a lot of i mean there and all the people who do that lots of stories of actors that freaked out and couldn't cope and others who were very calm about it and you know it's quite you, you don't know until you do it how you're going to react because no. if you have i guess if you have claustrophobia this is about the ultimate test <laughs> yes, indeed because <laughs> you cannot see here or do anything for about an hour and a bit you know it's pretty horrible and that did one time we were doing that around 2001 i think and it went wrong in the sense that I was sitting there with this thing on, I'm used to it. And then I, like now, if I did it now, I'd go, <coughs> anyway, da, 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 like a tiny little throat clear. I couldn't do that. And it all went, I don't even know. That's all I can remember. I went into a complete, you know, it's like a reptilian panic. It's not your conscious brain that's acting. What? It's something else and you cannot do anything and you're trapped in this thing. They could tell from outside because the woman who was my makeup woman had her fingers on my wrist and she said, your heart rate was like a motorbike. Yeah, it just you know, it just went. She couldn't believe it, so they ripped it off really fast. I can't really remember much about it, but boy, does that trauma stay with you! So I then said, "Look, I can't do it anymore because I can't do the cast thing. I just don't want to go through that." So I'm, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the deal is, I just can't do it, you know. And then, so then the next time I did do it, I went to a, a special effects place in uh, just outside London, sat on a big chair with ninety-two cameras rigged all around me wow. and I had to sit still for a second that was a lot easier and then they all go off these cameras all go off at exactly the same time and they use that to 3d print your head so that was the massive improvement it's a hard thing to describe but when you have all that stuff stuck on your face it naturally the weight of it just pulls your face down a bit and so you're a little bit sort of pulled down a bit and you and in a way that look of the kind of miserable Crichton is because the mask is sort of, <laughs> sort of that shape you know you've got to work against it so the mould is kind of, you look a bit droopy. Everyone does that does it. Whereas the 3D thing, it's just like I am. Uh, it's the most unflattering uh, printed 3D head. There's no, you can't go, well, I look a bit more handsome. No, you don't. That's what you look That's like. That's a bit jowly, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> is that really, does that what the back of my head looks? Yes, it is, yes. <laughs> so there's no there's no escape that. But the, the mask fits so beautifully now. And it doesn't pull up my face in any awkward way no it's now made of um silicon gel so it's quite heavy but you don't feel that when you've got it on uh, which is the stuff you'd seal around a shower tray or in the bathroom yeah. you know it's that it's that stuff so i can eat because you just wipe it off it doesn't absorb it's not a foam it doesn't no. absorb it so and i last time we did the long series i put on about three kilos <laughs> which i'd normally lose about 10 during a, and i put it on and so and then there were lots and lots of comments after the show went out that with people saying looks like Crichton's downloaded one too many apps <laughs> <laughs> it's Crichton's midriff, which was ripped and slim in the 1980s, has has increased somewhat yeah. over the years. <laughs> but you've been stuck on a spaceship all this time. Stuck on a spaceship. He's got a lot of hard drives. They're all full of data. <laughs> <laughs> Our next guest also knows a lot about space. From the brilliant Infinite Monkey Cage, which he co-presents with Professor Brian Cox, here's the amazing Robin Ince. 
This is the first thing that I'm going to put in. Carl Sagan, the great astronomer and science communicator, he, he wrote a book called Pale Blue Dot. And it's probably one of the most important books in terms of the trajectory, whatever sense of career I have, whatever you want to call it, whatever I end up doing, is because Pale Blue Dot was amusing over when Voyager had reached Saturn. Carl Sagan, after a lot of arguments, because people did not understand why they should do this, suggested that an image was taken of the Earth from Saturn. And, of course, everyone was looking outwards. Let's have a look at the photographs of where we're going in the yeah, solar system. And he was saying, well, let's have a look at our place in the solar system. So they managed to get these incredible images, which are called pale blue dot, because it's this tiny dot, even from the parochial size of the solar system, our planet is so small. And that's what he wanted. He wanted to get that sense of fragility. Yes. And the good fortune that, that we have to be in that particular area, to be in this this zone, a Goldilocks zone, as it, as it is sometimes called, the possibility of life. And so I, I love this book. I could even just turn the Carl Sagan's plate just to even just show the image. But I think if this was in here, it would give people uh, the full... If you, if you don't know... It's the, a famous uh, picture, isn't it? Because it is so uh, extraordinary. It's an extraordinary picture. It's the blueness of it as well. Yeah. When you say little blue dot, it really is bright blue. Well, it's it? such a... Um, where are we? Take a look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being, whoever was, lived out their lives. So even that, just that bit alone in the time capsule, if there wasn't n enough space and I had to cut out some pages, and of course, you know me, I do not damage books, <laughs> uh, but... Um, that would, because it, it also, what I find fascinating about it, because the other image that I would think of would be to take the image Earthrise taken by Apollo 8. And there's this beautiful story, which is Jim Lovell and uh, Bill Anders. Bill Anders basically was a bit annoyed by the moon. There he was, being one of the, you know, the, the first people to get a sense of what it looked like, a close-up sense. He was annoyed at how boring it was. Oh, <laughs> we've come all this way, such a boring thing, isn't it? And then... It just was fortunate that looking out the window, suddenly they saw the earth and Lovell and Anders were like, quick, get the camera, get the camera. And the commander, Borman, he, he was like, no, it's not on the itinerary. And they were like, bah! <laughs> Both those stories to me are a fascinating also theory of how we very often on our journeys go looking for the wrong thing. We go looking for what we think is the expansive outward picture and actually the interesting picture is back there. Mm. So, um, I mean, the Apollo 8 mission is a great mission. It's also on vomiting and diarrhoea and all manner of other things. It's, it's, it's <laughs> why they made Apollo 13 just because, it, you know, that, that you can see, but it, I think they should have done a follow-up because, you know, three astronauts floating in space trying to collect the bits of diarrhoea that have unfortunately come out from the uh, commander who's slightly <laughs> ill and then getting the Earthrise picture. That's the one thing that never comes across when you watch films involving space exploration is you never get the sense of the smell because that's what <laughs> often you hear is that when they actually land, of course, they were so small, they had such those modules and, and the stink. Hmm, sounds lovely. I must call Richard Branson a book of flight. OK, moving on to episode 115 and the actor Steve Delaney talking about his great comic creation, Count Arthur Strong. What I love about Count Arthur and the whole way that you write it is the use of language, is the thought that's gone into what words actually mean and how to twist them and make him say things that are absurd. 
that sounds sensible. That's the joy of it, I think. No, I mean, I, personally, I love those those flights of fancy. I always uh, call it, a, it's a stream of consciousness. Uh, uh, and, yeah. you know, whether whether I'm writing a book as Arthur or or a stage, people often ask me to describe stage shows, uh, particularly when I'm, uh, you know, trying to promote them. And I was, I, I, all I can say is it's, it's, I can't really tell you much about it. It has to appear as though it's a stream of consciousness and it's all yeah. unravelling before you. So if I say it's about this, that and the other, it's not really. I mean, I know what Arthur's in- intention is. but mm. I, I, And I always think by the time Arthur gets to the end of a show, he thinks he's done a bloody best job possible, you know. No matter how much has fallen off, the wheels have fallen off, you know, if he was in one of those circus cars, he'd be sat just holding the steering wheel and everything would be gone. And he'd think, oh, this <laughs> yeah, this is pretty good, isn't it? The optimism of the character as well is... The, yes, is the... no, no. And that's what I love about him too. It's extremely optimistic. It's always um, an eye on the main chance. How much of those? I'll buy five and I'll get a market store. Where's the market? (laughs) And he is optimistic. And I I think that's something some people miss, I think, uh, sometimes. Mm. You see people at your shows just looking at the stage and looking at everyone else as, as if they've gone mad. I know. they just yeah. don't get it. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> as long as it's the right way around, as long as they're, you know, yeah, yeah. they're the 25% rather than the 75%. I don't mind that. In fact, I like that. I don't do it on purpose. It's just a character. I, 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 I yeah. don't set out to do anything on purpose with Arthur. It's just kind of what comes out. Yeah. The stream of consciousness thing is what I, I, I love about him. I, I very, very rarely radio live show uh, books, uh, very rarely sit down and map out what I'm doing. A, lo- a, a lot of the radio shows, I'll think, I'll start with a monologue in Arthur's uh, kitchen, you know, I don't know, mm. what can he be doing? Uh, all right, he's steaming the stamps off letters or something like that. And that will just be the starting point. And then yeah. after about 30 pages, I'll think, ah, it's about this. <laughs> so I'll go back <laughs> to the beginning and then I'll start feeding those things in, you know. The other thing about Arthur is that, the, the, um, particularly writing books, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been writing uh, through lockdown uh, the second Inspector Marsden Mysteries novella because um, <laughs> Arthur is a renowned criminologist. And, and you know, the great thing about... Uh, it's also a difficult thing to get to gauge right, but the great thing about that is, is Arthur thinks at times he's the hero of the book. He thinks he's Inspector Marsden. Uh, it, beca- it does become apparent he thinks he's Inspector Marsden when it suits him. You know, he'll also do something like um, Inspector Marsden looked at his watch and realised he'd missed the first 20 sodden minutes of Bargain Hunt. So <laughs> I think that's quite enough for this chapter till I've been to Liddles. <laughs> and then he just stops, you know. Um, Brilliant. So, uh, of course, sometimes that can go a bit too far because it makes the story of the book. The story of the book still has to kind of shine through. But, you know, if he needs to go to the toilet, he'll write Inspector Marsden needs to go to the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) It's all very immediate with him, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's what's in front of him. And it's perfectly acceptable. It's all perfectly acceptable. I need to go to the toilet. Yeah, oh, well, he'll need to go to the toilet if I need to go to the toilet. Because when was the last time he went to the toilet? He hasn't been to the toilet for ages. (laughs) In fact, I'm a little bit worried. I might get get him to go to the doctor's on the way back from the toilet. (laughs) Where does it end? Uh, it's uh, It's brilliant. Count Arthur. Genius. Well, we've just got time to squeeze in another couple of guests, so you never know, this collection may have a part three. 
100. We'll see how we go. Anyway, one of the things that people choose for their time capsule is something from their life that they'd like to get rid of by burying it in the time capsule and never having to think about it again. And I think it's fairly obvious why the crime writer, Mark Billingham, chose this event from his past. And it goes into your time capsule. Okay. So that's four things that you love. Yeah. And very nice things as well. I sort of envy you your time capsule. I'm going to spoil it now. You're going to spoil it. Okay. Here we go. Well, it's a memory, I suppose. And it's a memory that's still with me because uh, I, I have to deal with it now and again. It's a horrible moment. It was 1999. I was filming again in Manchester. So from, from the lovely moment in Manchester when I met my wife and we're, you know, my wife and I dancing to madness. Cut to many years later, 1999, I was staying in a hotel in Manchester and I was filming with a friend of mine who we'd written this kids series and we were filming it. And we'd been out a couple of nights uh, on the town. And on this third night, we said, no, we need to talk about a show a bit. Let's stay and come over to my room and we'll talk about, you know, what we're filming tomorrow. Or and we ordered a pizza and a beer in the room. Still remember it, pizza and a beer for a fiver, good deal. Hmm. And there was a knock on the door. And I thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, uh, they've come to collect the tray or whatever, it's room service. And without thinking, I opened the door and there's three guys in balaclavas. <gasps> and these guys just smashed me in the face and charged into the room and tied us up, tied us up and hooded us. And, you know, cut a long story short, we were we were held hostage in that hotel room for three hours while one of them ran around Manchester with, you know, bank cards and, you know, look, as violent crime goes, it, it we emerged relatively unscathed. They nicked a few things that don't really matter. We got beaten up a bit. You don't know that at the time, though? You don't know that? No, no. It was three hours of lying there on the floor with my hands tied behind my back and a hood over my head thinking, am I going to see my wife and kids again? What What are they going to do? Why are they still here? What's happening? Um, mm. And it was just horrible. It was just, just horrible. That thing of... Um, you, you, you know, you think you know what it's like to be afraid because you've been on a roller coaster, you know, or you've seen a scary movie. But when you genuinely are thinking, am I going to die? Um, and I didn't, and it was... But I still, you know, I'm not saying I wake up screaming because it's not that, but I, I, I still have an element of PTSD, very... And it's, and it's, and it's rather a silly, strange uh, symptom of it, which, which I've, I've read that a lot of people with PTSD develop, which is an... I cannot... I cannot abide any sudden shock, movement, loud noise. And it's become a joke. It's a family joke. So if somebody walks into a room, I don't just go, oh, I go, ah! I mean, I, I, I'm... <laughs> or somebody drops a saucepan. And I certainly never had that before. No. So, yeah, I would, I would happily banish those three hours between, you know, 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock in the morning. The reason they stayed so long, just a bizarre little prosaic detail, was uh, the guy that ran around with the bank card that he got off me needed to use the, the, the bank card either side of midnight so he could get two days' worth of money. <laughs> nice little detail. And I've used it. I've used the whole incident in a book. I kind of used it in my second novel. I made it much nastier and much worse. But uh, I thought, well, I'm going to get something out of this. Mm. Um, it can't get much nastier, though. I think that that's a long time to be terrified, and I absolutely can understand that you would be terrified in those situations. And also, in the long term, what it does is is you've come across people who, for the sake of 500 quid, mm -hmm. are willing to put other human beings through that, and you've, you've witnessed that. You've seen it firsthand, and you, it, 
before then, I'm sure it was something you thought, I can't, I can't understand that. Yeah. Surely people wouldn't do that. Yeah, I, yeah, no. And of course, it was the location because you're in a hotel. You're on the fourth floor of a hotel and you imagine that you're completely safe. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, back, back at, this is back at the time I was working as a stand-up, I was staying in hotels a lot. And it became very, you know, there'd be a knock on the door and I'd like, listen, I don't care. I don't care whether you, you're dressed as, you know, a member of hotel staff. I want to see ID. I want ID slid under the door. I'm going to, you know, um, it's just the shock of it, just the absolute shock of it. It was just weird. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. What an awful thing. And what it suggests is that that's quite common. Well, the police, who obviously, you know, within about an hour of us uh, getting free, they just left and we, and it was rather bizarre. My friend who was tied up in the corner, he got himself free and I got myself free and he grabbed a chair and I grabbed a fire extinguisher and we went charging down into the lobby of this hotel. And of course, nobody in the hotel had any idea this was happening. So in the lobby... It's just people just coming and going. And these lunatics come charging down the stairs with fiery signature. And we go, what's going on? And we went, well, we'll tell you what's going on. We've just been... And the police turned up and the police said that they'd never heard of anything like it happening before. Really? They never caught them, by the way. They never got even close to catching them. What a terrifying story. Oh, well, I think we'd better finish with a bit of comedy. And we know who we should turn to for that, don't we? Yep, from the two episodes that I recorded with him, it's the great Barry Cryer. Pete Postlethwaite told me they were doing Macbeth in Newcastle with Bob Peck, his mate, playing the lead. And Pete, one night, Bob's really giving it to the audience. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And he paused, and the voice from the audience said, well, that'll be Friday then. <laughs> and there were conveyor belt auditions at the windmill. They wheeled you on and off. I auditioned at 10.30 in the morning. And uh, this voice, it was Van Damme, VD, Vivian Van Damme. Thank you. So that's it. And a man came on the stage called John Law, who became a friend, dressing room 12A. I said, what? He said, you've got the job. Wow. I was on stage just after quarter past 12, doing what I did at my audition. Oh, my word. Local news, locally out of weather forecast, live, obviously. And the newsreader hands over to the weather forecast. No technology, a board on an easel with a letter stuck on with Velcro. And the forecast was fog. And the camera cut to the board and the effort fallen off. And the viewers at home saw the word og. And the camera cut back to the newsreader who said, sorry about the effing fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and Humph used to, he loved jokes, stylish man. And he used to love saying to the audience, uh, do you realise you can buy a packet of sausages and on the packet is a picture of the chef, Anthony Worrell Thompson. Underneath it says, prick with a fork. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very And fabulous. the night before he... Went into hospital, Harrogate Conference Centre. We had a great night with a great man, and oh shit, he's going into a hospital tomorrow. Mm. We're all around the breakfast table in the hotel the next morning, and he had a bowl of prunes, Humph, and he took the first prune, and he went, and he looked around the table and said, How can you fuck up a prune? <laughs> <laughs> 
You have been listening to The Best of My Time Capsule 2021, Part 2, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and a selection of my guests. If you enjoyed listening and haven't done already, please subscribe to this podcast on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back very soon, probably with Part 3, and maybe Part 4, and then 5 and 6. And Oh, look, you might as well listen to the whole thing from the beginning. It's easier. Keep well. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.